verse 1. And before I begin on this, this begins a section of Scripture that this is, this is a part of Jesus that I, I just get goosebumps when I see this stuff going down. A lot of times we study the Bible with people trying to get to know Jesus. And as we do so, we pick kind of a, a favorite section of Scripture to help someone know Jesus from the Scriptures. And, and sometimes I love when Jesus is kind of going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee and he's going after battle after battle and he's taking down demons and he's inspiring others and serving and loving and all that sort of stuff and walking on water on top of all of that. And I think, whoa, now that's a man I'm, I'm excited to follow. But this section here, when Jesus, as we saw last week, comes in with triumph into the temple itself, right into the teeth of persecution. Oh, you guys are looking at that. That's why. I was like, I was like what's so interesting about sermon? <laughs> okay, so back we get. But he goes right into the teeth of his persecutors. But, but, but he does it with style. Coming on in, everybody's just screaming their heads off. Here he comes, here he comes in the name of the Lord. He saves, he saves. You know, and he's chilling on a little donkey. Humble as could be, but grand at the same time. Comes into the temple courts. And first thing he decides to do is come in and flip over all the tables. They are selling animals and exchanging money to actually in accordance, some might argue, with the Old Testament provision that if you live too far away, you need to be able to buy an animal once for sacrifice once you come. And this is Passover. He's coming in the week of Passover. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread that begins with Jesus's entry with all the pilgrims coming back into, into uh, uh, Jerusalem at this time. But as he comes in and he just flips it all over, what he's also doing is thumbing his nose at the hierarchy of the temple. Because there is clear authority structure in the temple, clear hierarchy. You know, interestingly, the word hierarchy itself means high priest. Uh, Hiros is, is priest. And arch, you know, like arch, arch enemy, arch uh, something. Uh, <laughs> Architect means chief builder, but 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 arc arc just simply means chief in, in this sense. And so in he comes and he flips over the hierarchy established by the chief priests. And fulfilling what is going to come our way later through through the apostles, that we will be all a nation of priests, as even the Old Testament prophets proclaim. And suddenly he's leveling the ground and recognizing that real authority comes from God, not because you've established it for yourself. Right. And that, that temple hierarchy would have been rather clear. Down at the bottom, the people. The, and, and of course, then even those that are excluded from the temple would be below that. The people that have been rushing in to hear the message of Jesus, the tax collectors, the sinners, those excluded from the temple, the disabled, the leprous, all of those that would not even have had access into the temple. They have suddenly come into the kingdom first. But then beyond would be the people, the worshipers. Above that would be the temple guards. Above that, the Levites. Above that, the chief priests. And, and above that, the high priest himself. 
and kind of circling in some sort of administrative, oppressive capacity over all of this is a group called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is, is the 70 really grouped from amongst either high priests or leading Pharisees, but especially teachers of the law. But within the Sanhedrin would have been, in, in, a, in a phrase that Luke is about to use here, the elders. And that would have been the core of the core of the Sanhedrin. And if the elders have suddenly come your way, you know that something big is about to go down. So with this backdrop of Jesus having flipped over literally the hierarchy of the temple, and especially the, those that were out to get him, he then is confronted by these very same people. And where we left off last week sounds almost like a, a TV series that leaves yourself with a cliffhanger, right? I mean, he, he flips over everything, and then verse 47 and 48, the end of, 20, uh, end of 19, reads, Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people. Remember that phrase, because it'll be repeated in just a moment by Luke. But that group, what were they trying to do? They were trying to assassinate him. And they began at that very moment, after he flipped over everything that they held dear as their position and power, they said, we've got to take this guy out. But they could not find any way to do it. Because all the people hung on his words. And, that, and that's the end. And that's a cliffhanger. And, and I hope even if, I mean, again, for us, well, there's a spoiler alert. He dies. And there's a spoiler, spoiler alert. He rises. Amen. So it's not quite the tension that we have from our perch of history. But nonetheless, reading this with first century eyes, you wonder, whoa, what's about to go down here? Well, what's about to go down now is a series of confrontation between the, the elders, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and Jesus. One after another after another. There are seven of them that, that, that come our way in quick succession throughout chapter 20. And then at the end of that, at the end of all of those, in 21, Jesus will basically say, Oh, and by the way, all this stuff is going to be wrecked. The Romans are going to bring a wrecking ball. To everything that is held dear here. And everything is going to be made new. And so again. Here we begin. Into the tension filled. Confrontation on the temple mount. One day. As Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts. And proclaiming the good news. In Greek that verb is literally evangelizing. As Jesus was evangelizing throughout the temple. The chief priests. The teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? They said, and who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven? Or from man. They discussed it among themselves and said, uh, you know, if we say from heaven, he's going to ask, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, well, all the people are going to stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know. We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you 
by what authority I am doing these things. <laughs> Who doesn't love this, right? I mean, I think to get absolutely crazy just how sweet and cool Jesus is. And as they're trying to come with him with all these kind of like trick questions and all of that, I mean, he's just got the mental jujitsu to be... You know, like, what? what happened? We thought we had him. But the, what is in view here is a bunch of folks who are very religious that are not unable to answer the question, but they are avoiding the question. Now, they come to Jesus and they make this thing all about authority. And how is it that you, co you come into my house, into my house, and you clean out the temple courts? You come into my house and you turn over the tables? Don't you realize this is our house? So who are you to come in my house with what authority to do those things that you just did? And what their, their object here is to do is all they want to do is discredit Jesus. That's all that's going on right now. Because these are the same folks mentioned back in, in verse 47 that were looking to not only discredit him, but destroy him. And that's actually the verb used back in 47. They were looking for a way to destroy Jesus. This is no simple kind of verbal sparring that's going on. There is intent to kill. This is like big deal stuff that, that we're facing as we read this portion of scripture. But what in a sense they are, they are trying to, to do with him is if he answers in, in this attempt to discredit him, that he, he comes on his own authority... I'm here because I say so. Well, then they can bring charges of blasphemy then and there against Jesus. Because he's then proclaiming himself to be God. He has his own authority to go in and cleanse the temple himself. But Jesus' time had not yet come. It's a week later, when, or at least five days later, when that time will come. And so Jesus is not ready to say yet, Hey, dude, I'm, I'm God. I can do what I want. But he, but he, but he backs off. But if he, if he, again, in their questioning, thinking this is just some guy, if he says, well, you know what? I don't really have authority. Or if he says, well, there was, you know, this one guy who wasn't present at the Sanhedrin one day who gave me authority and he kind of said that I could maybe do it. Well, then they would discredit him likewise as, as one who was not sanctioned by the Sanhedrin, and just some crazed maverick who's in here just spouting out his own ideas of his own mind. Either way, they were going to try and get him. And now, when Jesus now gives his reply, you got to remember this, that in the first century, for the first half of the first century in particular, John the Baptist was much more famous than Jesus. From documents outside of the Bible, particularly there's this historian guy who's good to know his name, is Josephus. He was the main Roman historian chronicling this area of Palestine uh, for, for, for all history purposes. And he devotes many, many, many more lines of history to John the Baptist than he does to Jesus. 
That's how well-renowned John the Baptist was. That's how respected he was. That's what a grand, pivotal figure John was to this crowd and, and really to the general population. And when we, when we recognize what, what Jesus then says in bringing up John, it's not an attempt on his part to dodge the question of authority that was brought to him. And rather than dodge the question... What he is instead doing is he's attempting to raise the stakes. And as he raises the stakes, he is about to make it known that the authority that he has really does confirm him as the Messiah, the Holy One of God, the Anointed One that you all have all been longing for year after year. And here I am. The reason that during this week of Passover that you leave a seat open Every single Passover waiting for the, the one who is to come. Well, I am here. And when they answer the question honestly, they will then understand all of this. But rather than face the question and answer the question, they decide to avoid the truth. To avoid the issue. And the question as Jesus brings it forth it's a multiple choice question. There's only two options. Yeah. Only two. Either John was from God or he's just some guy from a guy. And in other words, he's also asking them, how about John? Did John need or get your permission to preach the gospel? But they all held that John truly was a prophet. The people did anyway. But you see by their dialoguing that went on in verse 6 among the elders and the Sanhedrin trying to figure out, whoa. I mean, he, he just really put us in a corner with this question. What do we say? What do we do? What do we answer here? And they purposely try to avoid the issue. But Jesus, for all of us, wants us to answer the question. You know, here's an, you know, you can look up some of the, the funny answers to tests by kids, right? And, you know, after all the ABC multiple choices, they get to questions 11 through 18, and they're all true or false answers. And, you know, if you look at it closely, you don't know, I mean, you don't know if, it, if, if this kid has written true or false. It's actually pretty clever. <laughs> He's written that. But even if that is an option for some clever kid trying to get out of some simple geography test, we got so much more going on right now for us. And we need to answer the question. And the question that they had about Jesus was, what's your authority all about? And Jesus puts it back on them of whether they were going to surrender to what that authority was or not. And so, for us, we need to answer the question like a boss. Jesus came into the temple like a boss. People exalting him. The detractors are saying, shut them up, Jesus. How dare they say all this? Like a boss. He says, you know what? If I shut their mouths, the stones will cry out. Right. 
Because not only am I like a boss, I am the boss. Then he comes into the temple like a boss. As all the, those who think they're boss are then kind of flipped over and having to deal with this guy who's got it going on. And now, because all that they care about right now is who's boss, what's going on, they won't even answer the question. You know, the irony of it is, in the end, when they say, well, we don't know, is that they've shown themselves to be incompetent to judge. To incompetent to judge about John the Baptist and his ministry. And then, ironically, it'll be just a couple days later when they're going to claim competence to sit in judgment of Jesus himself. And so they reveal their own bankruptcy as guides for the people. Whereas Jesus never has to deal with this compromise. And why, why is it that they, they're, they're stuck here? There's two things at stake for them. They want to be popular with the people. And if they say from God, well, they'll be popular with the people. But there's one other thing that they don't want to do. They don't want to repent. And what was John's ministry all about? It said in, when we're introduced to John back in 1 and 2, but, but really when he begins preaching in Luke 3, it says he went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repent and prove your repentance by your deeds. And so he brought that message all around Judea, the very place where Jerusalem is situated. And later on, when all that are amazed by John and the clear authority of his message, because he brought it like a boss, they say, are you the one? Are you the one? And John, later in chapter 3, verse 13, says, you know what? I baptize but what with water. But there is one more powerful than I. And he will come. And the straps of his sandals I am unfit to untie. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And, by the way, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn the chaff with an unquenchable fire. Right after this, and with many other words, John continued to testify to Jesus. There's no unclear idea about who John thought Jesus was. And there was no uncertainty about who John was. That's the brilliance of Jesus' question. The answer to that question will answer the Sanhedrin's question. If they will just face the truth. But rather than face the truth, they want to avoid the truth. Why? They want to be popular, and yet they don't want to repent. Don't we face the same thing? Over and over again, in a postmodern world that wants to wriggle away from truth, and let's all get along by claiming relativity, by claiming subjectivity. But, well, you know, that's, that, that, that's good for you. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure for me. That's just avoidance. And, and you know, there was a, a really interesting article that was published five years ago 
in the, the journal of uh, the review of general psychology. And it was all about why it is that people avoid truth, truth about themselves. And there were three main things they concluded. One, it will likely require a change of your beliefs. Two, it may require you to take undesired action. And three, it may cause some unpleasant emotions. Every one of us, when we have to face the truth about ourselves and about Jesus, when we go from just living dead in sin, living like all others in the world, and suddenly we come to that place where we're before many others, and we're asked, what is your good confession? And we say, like a boss, Jesus is Lord. Yes. That journey, that journey is a remarkable journey where we have to change our beliefs, take some then undesired actions, and deal with a little emotional pain along the way. And because people don't want to go after truth like a boss, and instead want to do it like a wuss, they say, well, I know it's true for you, is it true for me? I think what this means is, I think what that means is, here's the crazy part. These folks who are coming at Jesus... They were the teachers of the law. They were the scribes. Right. If you wanted to be a scribe, if you wanted to be a teacher of the law, if you wanted to be part of this little group that's confronting him, you had to spend three big stages of your life. The first from a young age, from preteen age on, being the pupil of a rabbi. Matter of fact, Josephus, who I just recently mentioned, at the age of 14, wrote how he had already spent many years in tutelage, training to be a teacher of the law. So that first stage is just you learning, imitating all that you can do. The second stage, you're considered an, an unordained scholar. And at that point, you've mastered the law, you've mastered its understanding, and you can apply it to yourself. But then the third stage, when you are then ordained, you then can be holding the title of rabbi, of teacher. And at that stage, you are then competent and are actually then engaged to consult and to judge in not only civil matters, but criminal matters pertaining to the law. You also interpret the law and establish religious tradition for the entire community. So these experts in the interpretation of the law, ironically, according to Luke 7, rejected God's will for themselves by rejecting John and then rejecting Jesus. Why? Because they'd have to change their beliefs. They'd have to take some undesired action. And there might be a little emotional pain along the way. Well, that's every big decision in our lives. That's every time we take our head out of the sand and face the truth. And do it like a boss. You know, that's how we're meant to live our lives. Not as an oss. Tridge, whose head is in the sand, but like a boss. <laughs> and who doesn't appreciate that in every way that you see it? BJ grooms that mustache. How? Like a boss. Clay plays the bass. How? Like a boss. 
Rodolfo walks in a room. Like a boss. A few years back, Kirk Valencia walked into a, um, another religious group at ODU's meeting wearing a fishing cap, a vest, and brought in a fishing pole. And some of the folks there said, what are you doing? And you know what he said? Like a boss, I'm fishing for men. And one of those guys who talked with him was Phil Elliott, who ended up getting baptized and going on the mission team to Roanoke. You know, this uh, past week at team camp, they had a talent show. And let's just say not all the talent was... You said it. But it did not matter. Because no matter how off-key they were, they brought that song to my ears like a boss. I mean, it was like Mick Jagger up there singing the song. I'm like... Whoa! They brought it. But how do you want to live your lives? Like an os? Church your head is in the sand? Or like a boss? Jesus leads us always in triumphal procession, 2 Corinthians tells us. We're with Him, like Him, and following Him. That's how we need to be living our lives. But my goodness, it all begins. Whether you're seeking God right now, whether you're at a crossroads in your Christian walk, it all begins with answering the question. Answering the question like a boss. Who is Jesus? Is he Lord? Or is he something relative? Is there more than one way? Or is Jesus the only way? And by the way, if there's more than one way, then God and Jesus are fiends and a fool. Why? Because if there's another way, if all you have to do is kind of, I don't know, meditate and concentrate, and that'll get you to heaven, well then, God, why not just promote that way? Rather than have your own son Die a torturous, heinous death. Humiliated before all. Why have that if there's any other way? You can't in any way admire Jesus and try to then also make a claim, well, it's just one possible way. Don't admire that then. Because that's crazyville. If that's what God would do when there could be another option. But there is no other. Jesus went to the cross like a boss. Why? Because that's the only way. And we're to respond to it. And he demands that we respond to it because it's the only way. But this responding to it is also very clear scripturally. And that we are, as, as, as we now live out our Christianity, we're called to follow Jesus. Follow him, not in some sort of milk, toast, anemic, pitiful way. You've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. you got the power that raised Jesus from the dead dwelling within you. You've got a guarantee that heaven is yours to claim. And you've got a commission 
from no less than Jesus Christ, having proclaimed all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, like a boss, now go and make disciples of all nations. We live in a world that doesn't want to proclaim anything with clarity. If we can keep everything fuzzy, then you can keep from ever having to change your beliefs. From ever having to make a difficult decision. From ever having any sort of emotional pain of rearranging our lives. And no longer am I Lord, but Jesus is Lord. You know, I appreciate that when, when the man who met me stared me down as I was trying to play this relative game with him. And he looked at me. His name was Mike Mines. His son Drew Mines leads the church in, in, in Charlottesville. But looked at me intently without blinking until I was squirming, although I didn't show it because I knew how to act like a boss. <laughs> but he, filled with the Holy Spirit, continuing to really bring it my way like a boss, helped me to finally realize that all my bravado was amounting to nothing. And unless I really took the hard look at what are my beliefs, what will be those undesired actions that will result from real repentance? What might be the unpleasant emotions that, that, that might come from that? And to recognize all of that does not matter. That with faith in the true boss, the boss that wanted to be discredited here, the boss that is undeniable, that we can have all that he promises. Because he's not only the boss of the temple, but based on his authority, his promises are good. All the promises he brings your way. But it's going to require not living life on your own terms. Because in and of yourself, you're not a boss. Not even close. But that's what Jesus wants you to be. And it's not going to happen because you suddenly have a surge of self-confidence. It's only going to happen when you're able to proclaim the boss is Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's the ultimate statement of repentance. The ultimate rearranging of our lives. But it's also the very thing that we need to proclaim wherever we go. And we need to walk everywhere we go with that kind of confidence that Jesus has. As he walked into the temple. As he prayed ready to go to the cross. As he confronted the Pharisees. As he touched the leper. As he led his men. As he taught and preached and healed. That same confidence is what he calls us because we're called to do nothing less than follow him. And let it be that is one simple thing for this week. And here's my simple practical application. Is every threshold that you cross, when you cross this threshold out of this room today, when you cross the threshold into your home, when you cross the threshold into the world, into your workplace, into your neighbor's home, that you do it knowing that you have the authority of Jesus Christ. If you truly have been repented, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you sit here today as that really being who you are, that you go about your Christianity anywhere, everywhere, every time, like a boss. Thank you.